So the subject for this morning is faith in science, and it's based upon uh, a book that I read recently um, called Believing is Seeing. And I'll talk about a little bit more about that here in just a minute. But let's pray as we begin this morning. We're grateful, Lord, for the privilege that we have to be together. We thank you for the time of worship that we have experienced already. And we're grateful for the, just the work that you call us to do in giving an answer and being ready to give an answer for anyone who questions our faith and asks for the hope uh, within us. I just pray, Lord, now that you would bless our time together. Pray that your spirit would minister to each of us in the room, that you would uh, let me get out of the way and that your spirit could minister to people through the subjects and the topics that we talk about this morning. Bless now our time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book is called Believing is Seeing. I've made a reference on the back of your notes. And it's written by a guy who is a PhD. He actually a, has three different PhDs, and he got them all at the same time. One is in astronomy, one is in physics, and the other is in mathematics. Uh, he, was, he grew up in East LA, very poor, uh, but got himself uh, established in, in some uh, important schools and was able to get a triple major, which is an extraordinary achievement. And uh, so <clears throat> over time, he got connected with ABC and was a science editor for ABC. And in the book, he describes some of his experiences. He went on the, one of the first voyages to the Titanic and um, was, was able to show pictures for his viewers and describe his experiences. And in that experience, he described um, getting stuck. They went to the propeller, the Titanic, and it got tangled in the props. Their, their cable, their life cable got tangled in the props. And he, for several minutes, he was calculating the amount of oxygen in that little machine and how long they could survive. There were three people in the, in the submersible. And that was, became a faith experience for him. And uh, it became a point in his life where he determined what his worldview was and why it matters. We'll talk about that here in a few minutes. But from that experience, he began reading the Bible with his wife and uh, found some uh, the subjects to be compatible with the disciplines of his science and particularly with physics. We'll be getting into that next week on a subject called translogic. I'll explain to you what that is and, and how it is compatible with scripture. But this week, we're just talking about some of the basic uh, conclusions that he made in his quest. And I think that they're instructive for Christians. One of the things, a uh, conversation I had this week was with a a Christian believer talking about how we're losing our kids. We're losing our kids at university, and the reason for that is because the church is inadequately prepared to address the challenges to faith and to scripture that the kids are hearing at university. And we need to be better equipped to do that. And so a book like this is helpful, I think, and I, I have two weeks here, so I thought I'd, I would develop that subject. I hope that you find it interesting. So um, if I were to ask you, first question, am I doing that? 
First question, next slide, uh, the first slide, if we could get that up there. If someone were to ask you to prove that God is real, how would you respond? How would you respond? Uh, the uh, inventor, Thomas Edison, asked that question. He was an atheist, and he believed in the scientific method, and he used the scientific method to experiment uh, with different filaments to create the light bulb. And, uh, and, he and so he believed that everything in life that was relevant, that was important, could be proven. And so his challenge to Christians was, if God is real, prove it. And if you can't prove it, then shut up. That was his reaction. Very similar reaction we get in our own culture. So if someone were to ask you to prove that God is real, how would you respond? Anybody have any suggestions, any thoughts? We cannot empirically put God in a box. We can't smear God on a Petri dish. We can't contain him within the confines of an experiment. And so you can't prove that God exists empirically. Now, the proper response would be um, probability or preponderance of evidence. Preponderance of evidence. That's a term that we use in law. And a person can be convicted in trial based upon the preponderance of evidence. That is, if most of the evidence supports a guilty charge, then the person is, is, is determined to be guilty. And so when we talk about God, um, the, the evidence of his existence is abundant in Scripture. And I'll talk a little bit more about this this morning. Let's go to the next slide. Romans says, the invisible things of God from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that man is without excuse. There is an abundance of evidence of the existence of God in creation. And so you can use probability, you can, you can use evidence, but the, the, the fact of God's reality is existent in nature. Next slide. Proverbs 25.2, in my view, is one of the reasons that we have science in the first place. That the glory of God, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the honor, it is the glory of kings to search it out, to, to reveal what God has demonstrated in creation. We have a, a lady in our faculty at the Grace Bible Institute in Sierra Leone. She's just uh, newly introduced. Her name is Diana Burns, and she's from California. And she teaches Bible study methods. And as she teaches Bible study methods, she'll, she, and she teaches mostly in Africa. She's in Zimbabwe right now. And she'll be teaching for our school in April in Sierra Leone. And she says, I have a Bible study method that involves three questions. Number one, what does the text say? And they go into the original language or they go into the plain reading of the, of the words. They'll look at the culture. They look at different things and they'll look at the context and they'll look at the different aspects of interpretation and say, what does this text say? The presumption is the text has a meaning and only one meaning and it's possible to know what that is. There are multiple applications but the text was written with the intention of one meaning. 
And having determined what the meaning is, the second question is, what does it say about God? What does this passage of Scripture say about God? It is the duty of man to glorify God. It is the duty of, man, of, of mankind to understand God and to have a relationship with God. And so her focus in studying the Scripture is, what does this particular passage say about God. And then having determined that, the third question is, what difference does it make? How does it affect my life? What should I do differently? How should I behave differently based upon this particular text, what it means and what it reveals about God? And as she described it to me, I thought that's a, that's a great way to approach the scripture. And, I'm, and I think about, I wonder about how our churches in Africa would be different if our pastors preached sermons based on those three questions. The reality is science is the same discipline. Einstein said, I want to know God's thoughts. When we dig into the natural creation and we learn about how God has created the natural world, a natural response is to worship. The book of Job, you recall, longest speech of God in the Bible, talks about his creation, reveals his creation, and re, um, revisits the creation with Job. And what's Job's response? Shut my mouth. I have nothing to say. You are God and I'm not. So that's the, that is supposed to be the reaction, the response of science is to reveal something about God and to, and to uh, live and change our lives, to honor him through that. Now, we, there was a time when people thought, well, we pretty much know everything there is to know about science, and uh, there isn't probably anything new. And uh, this was before microscopes and, and different kinds of uh, study methods. But they think, well, we pretty much know everything. Um, Darwin thought the cell was just a blob of tissue. Didn't understand, didn't appreciate that there's a factory in there that utilizes and stores information, utilizes and stores energy. And so the revelation of that gives wonder to the creation of God. I was sent a picture by my brother about the moon in the Arctic this time of year. When you're in the Arctic, the moon will show up for about 30 seconds. And you get a sense of how fast the earth is really spinning because it'll go up. You see the whole moon. It looks like it takes a third of the sky and then it drops down all within 30 seconds. And the reaction, he says, is to drop your knees before a holy God. That's what nature is supposed to do. That's what Paul says about nature in Romans 1. God has revealed himself, his eternal characteristics and his attributes through what has been made so that man is what? has no excuse. Shut my mouth. I have nothing to say. That's the intended response to science. And as we will find out this morning, the things that we have learned about science with the um, application of, uh, as we're able to penetrate deeper into space with telescopes, as we're able to penetrate deeper into the micro-universe with electronic microscopes, uh, the astonishing things that we learn about creation 
I think, beg even greater the notion that God is real and that God has revealed himself through his creation. Okay, um, on uh, <clears throat> number one in your notes, faith is a strong belief in God or in the doctrines of religion based upon spiritual apprehension. Apprehension, in this case, the word is being used for understanding. A spiritual understanding rather than proof. We learn things by spirit. It's interesting to me that even atheists, agnostics, will acknowledge the existence of spirit because of the way art affects us. You can be moved by a piece of music or you can be moved by a painting or architecture. There are things in nature that move, our, move us spiritually. My brother went through a period of time when he was uh, out of the faith, he was in the Navy, and he had uh, turned away from God, and he took up parachuting. And he was um, a rabid fan of parachuting. He'd get up every Saturday morning, go out in an airplane, perfectly good airplane, and jump out of it. And he talked about the effect that it had on him as he was suspended in space between earth and sky and the beauty of creation that he was able to see and the um, extraordinary experience that was happening to him physically as he was getting the adrenaline rush and, and the dopamines were surging through his body. And I remember telling him, Don, that sounds an awful lot like a spiritual experience. And he would scoff and laugh. He said, no, it's just, I'm just having fun. But I believe that Jumping out of an airplane affected him spiritually, even though he didn't believe in God at that time. Next slide. Hebrews agrees with this Webster uh, definition in that um, the apprehension rather than proof. Writer of Hebrews says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. I believe this passage is both a description of what faith is as well as what faith does. It provides the basis of hope and it provides evidence spiritually rather than uh, intellectually. Number A, under faith, blind and misguided faith, is the believing in the belief that in something that can be disproven. The tooth fairy, or Santa Claus, or unicorns. The question here is, is the opposite also true? Is blind, misguided faith a belief in something that cannot be proven? That cannot be proven. The temptation is, well, aren't you saying the same thing? And no, we're not really. Because there are things that we understand to be true that cannot be proven. We'll get more into that here in a few minutes. Uh, number B, evidence-based faith is intelligent faith. Um, things like um, the things that we, we believe that are undergirded by evidence. In this case, empirical evidence. There was a time when people believed in spontaneous generation. Remember that from high school biology? How many remember spontaneous generation? Spontaneous generation was the belief that animals arose 
from inanimate things. It was about the time of Darwin. 1859 was when Darwin's uh, Origin of Species was published, and a guy named Louis Pasteur did experiments and published them that same year because it, Darwin was using the uh, spontaneous generation as evidence of his theory. So it, 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 spontaneous generation taught that squirrels came from oak trees and that fish arose uh, spontaneously from the mud of dry riverbeds or ponds and that flies arose from dead meat. That's the most common definition that I remember from school. And so Liz, uh, Louis Pasteur did an experiment with jars of meat and he put uh, cloth over the top and one he did and one he didn't. And he used an empirical approach to disprove the notion that flies spontaneously arose from dead meat. He, the, the jar with the, with the cloth over it didn't generate any maggots, any flies. And the one that did, had no cover did. Did a similar experience with broth. He boiled broth and he had a beaker that was open and then he had one with an S-curve in the beaker. And the one that was uh, open generated life. Gener it became cloudy and had bacteria inside. And the one that had the S-curve didn't. And the point was that flies don't come spontaneously. They require mommy and daddy flies. And fish come from actually from birds that drop fish eggs into ponds that create, that generate. So fish come from mommy and daddy fish. And flies come from mommy and daddy flies. And there is no such thing as spontaneous generation. It was a remarkable discovery at the time. But he used evidence and experiment to make his point, make his case. And so the faith was supported by evidence. Next slide. Um, let me, uh, let me, uh, the second point under spiritual faith is the notion that things that we apprehend, things that we understand based upon our spirit. And one of those is that God is real and he is not silent, that he speaks to us through his word, through prayer, through other people. He manifests his presence to us, and we ask for that every week in this church when we begin services. Uh, Dee or somebody will get up and invite the presence of God into our midst because we recognize that God is real and that he manifests his presence to us in a tangible way. There is a... Um, Another illustration I wanted to give, and it gets back to the question, do we believe in things that cannot be proven? Is it, is it reasonable to believe in things that cannot be proven? One of those things is Occam's razor. There was a guy named William of Occam who was a friar in England back in the 19th century, and he published a thesis that said, we call it, yeah, we call it Occam's razor, and it's the point that things that have, that are, um, problems that you identify, it's typically best to find the simplest solution. We understand that as the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Well, that originates from Occam's razor. 
and it's something that cannot be proven. You can't prove Occam's razor, but we understand that it's true based upon the, um, the, pre the uh, preponderance of evidence. Another one is um, a guy named uh, an Italian economist by the name of Pareto, and he developed a theory that in any population, 80% of the people have wealth. Have, correction, 20% of people have 80% of the wealth. And he determined that was true in virtually any civilization. Well, that evolved over time to become what we call the 80-20 principle, which means that the, the majority of effects are, are produced by the minority of causes. Majority of effect, 80% of any effect is produced by 20% of causes. Well, there's an entire industry, quality industry, that's built around Pareto principle, the 80-20 principle. If you want to improve quality, you want to reduce costs, you want to um, uh, improve your performance of your business through Six Sigma, through Duran, through Deming, all these different quality initiatives. If you work for a big corporation, you've heard this before, it's all built around Pareto. Well, can you prove the 80-20 principle? No, you can't. We have learned through a preponderance of evidence that it tends to be useful. It tends to be successful. And so we believe it to be true based upon faith, on evidence-supported faith. And we embrace, and sometimes the, the distribution is 10 and 90, or it might be uh, 45 and 55. It might be... Uh, you know, a different number. It's not always 80-20, but the general premise is the majority of effects are produced by a minority of causes. 80-20 principle. All right, now I'm ready. Dr. Guillen describes a spiritual faith as a force of nature, not unlike gravity and or electromagnetism. And he tells a story, he references the story of the Pharisee uh, that Jesus goes to his house and um, he, the, there's a woman there who is washing his feet and is um, giving him um, and, and just ministering to him. And I believe the Pharisee's name was Simon. It's in Luke chapter um, 7. And toward the end of the story, um, well, in the course of the story, Jesus says, woman, your sins are forgiven you. And so they question, well, what, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they challenge him on that statement. And, uh, his, and Jesus' conclusion is he was forgiven much he who has sinned much will, will be for, forgiven much, will uh, be, have greater gratitude. And then at the last, in verse uh, 50, he, says, he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. And there are several examples in the scripture where faith saves people. And Gian says, that faith has the power to change people not unlike power of nature, electromagnetism and gravity. And he supports that with the notion of what faith does now, not just based in the scripture. 
Faith has redeemed people from addiction. Faith has redeemed people from depression. Faith has redeemed people and has saved their lives. Based strictly on faith, no medication. And so he, he said our ability to appropriate our faith to change our life gives faith a power comparable to the to or even greater than the power in nature. Next slide. Your worldview is determined by where you choose to place your faith. Your worldview is determined by where you choose to place your faith. This church is assuming a ministry in Salem. I just went to a staff meeting this week. And we are sending people to Salem to minister to the youth there in the colleges and in the high school. Because Salem has been denoted as one of the most, the highest rates of suicide in the nation. Not just in Oregon. Well, why is that? Why is it that people become so depressed that life is no longer worth living? That's a huge decision to make. For a young person. Well the reason is because they lost hope. They lose hope. Well why do they lose hope? Because they're taught in their schools. That they are a product of accidents. That they are a product of random choice. And the conclusion to that is. There is no purpose. There is no truth. And there is no God. When you have no purpose. And you're living in, a, in an awful situation in your home. When you have no purpose and you don't have enough money to feed yourself. And when you have no purpose, when, when there's your circumstances in life are awful and terrible, suicide becomes a valid alternative. And it is becoming increasingly so. Suicide and opiate addiction is a, is a huge uh, issue in our country. And, um, well, I, there's other examples that I give, but I... Need to move on in the interest of time. Your worldview is determined by where you choose to place your faith. And that's why we have, as a church, a responsibility to engage the world on worldview and on faith. Number two, Roman numeral two, science is a systemic enterprise that builds and organizes knowledge in the form of testable explanations and predictions about the world. Again, that's from Webster. This is defined, number two, as empirical science. Empirical science is based upon the scientific method. Empirical, uh, scientific method has, was largely responsible for what we call the, not the Reformation, but the Renaissance where knowledge began to explode in its, in its volume. There was a time when um, knowledge doubled roughly every 2,000 years. Uh, as an example, the, sh uh, the example of ships is given. The Apostle Paul and the Vikings same, sailed in the same ship, the kind of ship that we had in our Revolutionary War. Um, USS Constitution, you can still see it. And I believe it's in Baltimore. It's a wood hull with sails. And that's how you navigated through the oceans. And so knowledge didn't increase that much in that roughly 2,000-year period. But by the First World War, correction, the Civil War, we had ironclads ships. We had the, 
the battle between the Monitor and the Merrimack during the Civil War, which were ships made of iron. And the historians will remark at that time, they had a battle that lasted the whole day and one of them eventually retired. And at that point in history, every other Navy in the world became a dinosaur. And so by the World War I, 1865 to 1917, the rate of, of uh, knowledge exploded, where knowledge was increasing every 50 to 75 years. And then during, during the period, uh, we went through the space age, and then we came into the area of knowledge. And now it's, pro it's projected, it's assumed, I'm good, Oh, closer? Okay. It's um, estimated that knowledge doubles every 90 to 100 days. The rate of what we understand, what we know about the universe is expanding at a rocket ship rate because of our capacity. Uh, actually, where knowledge began to expand quickly was um, with the printing press because you could share knowledge with other people and they could expand on it. And now we have computers and the internet and the, in, um, just a limitless capacity for storage. And so knowledge is increasing. And by the way, this was predicted in the scriptures in the last days, knowledge will increase. Empirical science, scientific method, define a problem, develop a hypothesis, a, a, um, an idea about how to solve the problem, make a prediction, experiment, collect data, and make conclusions. This is established, number B, as the scientific method. Now there are multiple types of science, and this is relevant to consider. Um, the formal sciences are sciences like logic and mathematics. Mathematics in particular is a formal science. And natural sciences are also formal, but they have more to do with nature, like physics and chemistry and biology. So if I go to the hospital and I get a lab study and they measure the amount of red cells in my body, how much potassium, magnesium, electrolytes are in my blood, that is empirical science. It uses machines and the machines are somewhat vulnerable to error, but generally speaking, it is, I can have confidence that this is an empirical research that's done on my body regarding my health in a natural situation. And different uh, interpretations have different meanings clinically. If my blood cells are too low, I have anemia. If my potassium is too high, my heart has problems. And so there's things that we conclude based upon empirical numbers, and that is empirical science. The soft sciences are things like anthropology, geology, astronomy, and particularly social sciences and political science. And the point that Guillen makes in his book is that it, once you get past the empirical sciences, physics, chemistry, and mathematics, you get into a squishy area because it's vulnerable to bias. If I am a drug developer, my job is to develop new cures for diseases. And I publish a drug, or I, I, I create a drug, and I want it to be tested. And so I'll go to a university, and I'll say, I'll pay you $200 million over five years to test the efficacy of this drug. 
And so the university takes my money and they conduct experiments and research based on how you, what the drug is supposed to do. And they get to the end of the five years and they'll, they'll always be, well, there's questions. Generally, your drug is very promising, but there's other things that we need to study. And so there's another $500 million for another four or five years, and this just goes on indefinitely. If I am influenced by money and I'm conducting the research, is that likely to create bias in my conclusions? Well, of course it does. Of course it does. We have a physician friend who said there hasn't been realistically neutral medical research for probably two decades, maybe longer, because it's influenced by politics and by science. If I'm studying, doing a study, and I'm an anthropologist, and I'm doing a study in the Grand Canyon, and I want to include flood geology in my interpretations of what happened in the Grand Canyon, and I take Mount St. Helens, we learned a huge amount of what happens in geology with Mount St. Helens, where 14 strata of debris were laid within a single afternoon presumed to take millions and millions of years. Well, if I say that, am I going to get published in a secular journal? Am I going to elevate myself in my university? Am I going to get tenure as a professor in a, uni a secular university if I employ flood geology into interpretation of the Grand Canyon? I can tell you it doesn't happen. If your creation you believe in creation, you believe in the Bible, you believe in God, you have no place in secular anthropology. So, so the science is biased. It's like we, uh, the, the secular scientist has shielded their view from any notion of, being, of there being a God because I don't want to be religious. I don't want to be accused of having faith because faith is contrary to science, or so they teach, and so they believe. So most of what we hear in science, and this is, this is particularly true in our day right now, when somebody says to me the science is settled, when somebody says to me that there is consensus among scientists about anything, all kinds of red flags, an alarm should go off in your head. Because that's not, it ceases to be science. It becomes religion. When I have said that, because science is never concluded. It's never finished. When talking about his theory of relativity, Einstein said there can be 8,000 experiments that will support my theory, but it would take only one to blow it apart. Because Einstein understood it was just a theory and it wasn't provable. And so there would be, there may be all kinds of experience, there may be new evidence over time beyond his lifetime that would disprove it. Now, in fact, that's not been the case, but uh, and people generally appreciate and understand uh, his theory. We'll get into that more next week. But um, anytime I am told that science is conclusive on any subject is a reason to be skeptical. So there are certain myths, uh, myths about science in your um, 
in your notes, uh, number one, uh, one myth about science I've already covered is science is not dogmatic. When I am excluded from participating in a scientific discussion because of my faith or because of a, um, a perspective that I bring that's not politically correct, it ceases to be science. It becomes religion. Now, there is a place for science to be dogmatic. It is appropriate to be dogmatic about the scientific method. We have learned much about our natural world through the scientific method. The problem is all of those disciplines, the scientific disciplines that I, that I listed for you in your notes have their own version of what the scientific method means. And all but the very basic ones, physics, chemistry, mathematics, employ the original scientific method established in the 19th century. Science is definitely dogmatic. Number two, science does not require faith. Well, because of the bias that has been inserted into scientific process, it, is, it requires a huge amount of faith to believe the conclusions of science. And again, we, we're getting into that discussion um, about COVID right now. Well, who do you believe? Because of competing scientific conclusions that are released to the public, it becomes difficult and confusing to determine who to believe. Number three in your notes, science is about the betterment of mankind. Well, there's a lot of things that science has produced that are not about the nuclear bombs. As an example, weapons of mass destruction. There are many things that in science that are not produced for the betterment of mankind, but are produced to increase the power of a particular political class. And we hope those are the good guys, but that isn't always the case. Number four, and I'm going to camp on this last one uh, the most, which uh, Guillen develops in his book. Science is more compatible with atheism than it is with a Christian faith. You ever heard that before? Well, I'm not, I don't believe in God, I'm a scientist. And, and you find very few people who embrace atheism who are willing to be to confess to um, having faith. So let's go to the next slide. What Guillen did in his book was ask, actually asked hundreds of questions. And you may not be able to read this clearly from where you're sitting, but he included three of them in his book. And the, the uh, first one is, does absolute truth exist? And the answer to that is yes or no. And are there truths that cannot be proven? Well, we've already established that with uh, the, um, with, go, go ahead and stay on that first slide if you would, please. Um, the, are there truths that cannot be proven? And is the universe designed for life? Those are fairly basic questions, rudimentary questions. And each of disciplines that he has, science and atheism and Christianity, he put across the top to, to illustrate where those three philosophies, those three faith organisms, and 
are in terms of response to these questions. The results are kind of interesting. So, number one, does absolute truth exist? And, he, and Guillen quotes um, gravity. Newton, Isaac Newton. He said when Newton was young, uh, the general belief was that there was two kinds of creation. The uh, terrestrial, which is the moon and down. And the terrestrial was made up of earth, air, water, and fire. And the terrestrial was contaminated. It was damaged. It was bad. And then above that was the celestial. That is the stars, the moon, uh, correction, the stars and the sun and all, everything above the moon. And that was divine. And it was made up of the fifth essence. I've talked about this before. It was quintessential. Air, earth, water, and fire was on the earth. And the fifth essence of which angels were made were beyond that. And everybody understood that there was a difference between what happened in the heavens and what happened on earth. Well, Newton was able to prove, we, we typically think of Newton as making a theory based upon an apple falling on his head. And he did describe gravity, but he didn't just describe gravity on earth. He was able to use the discipline of mathematics to prove that gravity also existed in the heavens. And in fact, the same rules of gravity that applied on earth also applied in heaven. And what was explosive about Newton's theory was that there was a uniform truth between earth and heaven. They were under the same rules. If you've ever seen the movie Apollo 13, it's when the Apollo ship was, uh, they, they had an explosion on the, on the spacecraft and they were losing their oxygen, they were losing their energy. And one of the recommendations was for the ship to, if this is the moon and this is earth and, this, and the ship is right here, they said, well, let's just turn the ship around and go back to earth. And what they ended up doing was slingshotting around the moon, using the moon's gravitational pull to project the, that spacecraft back to earth because it didn't require as much energy on board the spacecraft. They could use the gravity. Well, that was based on Newton's theory hundreds of years earlier. And so um, Newton exploded this notion that there's a difference between, in reality and in truth between earth and the heavens. And so Guillen, in his book, answers the question with Newton's theory, among others, that there's an absolute truth that exists both on earth and in heavens. He answers the question, yes. There are truths that apply universally, regardless of where you are. Now, there are some people who embrace science who would disagree with that, but he makes the case based on evidence. Next one, next question under science, are there truths that cannot be proven? And I've given you a couple of examples of that already. Things that we understand to be true, that can't, you can't put it in a test tube. You can't put it in an experiment and you can't produce that in a laboratory. Number three, is the universe designed for life? Is the universe designed for life? This is my favorite. 
This, in fact, this is a favorite point of the entire morning. There was a guy by the name of Martin Rees. And Martin Rees is a physicist for the nation, for the United Kingdom. He's actually Sir Martin is what he's called. And he published a book called Just Six Numbers, The Deep Forces That Shape the Universe by Martin Rees. And Guillen references him in his book. And if you try to analyze these six numbers, it was way over my head. Um, there, was, there were numbers, there were six of them, and, and they were all defined by Greek letters. And so, for example, epsilon takes the atom and measures the gravity, the pull between protons, neutrons, and electrons. I'm going to get a little weedy here, so stick with me. An atom is made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons, and the protons are in the nucleus, and the electrons circulate around the nucleus. And there is a force that causes those electrons to circulate around the nucleus. And apparently, for reasons that are beyond my thinking, they can measure that force. Next slide. And that force is 0 0.007. It doesn't say what it is, nanograms per decagram. or I mean, there's no measurement that I could see. And he and uh, Reese, in his theory, says if the universe had a nuclear efficiency value of 0 0.008, it would be too hot. Let me uh, read here what he says. measure of nuclear efficiency, E for epsilon, has a value of 0.007. If it had a value of 0.006, there would be no other elements in existence. Hydrogen, as we know it, would not exist, according to Reese. Anybody understand and appreciate what would be different in our lives if hydrogen did not exist? We wouldn't have water. What is water made up of? One hydrogen, two oxygens. If, he says, uh, didn't fuse with helium, if, if they were, the value were 0 0.008, protons would have fused in the Big Bang, leaving no hydrogen to fuel future stars or deliver, the, uh, deliver water. And if it were six, there would be no other exist elements in existence at all, including compound elements. Now, do I buy this? I don't even understand it. It doesn't matter if I buy this. What matters is he does. This doctor, this PhD, Martin uh, Reese, who published this book and these six theories. Another one is lambda. And lambda is a Greek, another Greek letter that measures the gravitational pull between stars and the heavens. And they've, they've uh, 
concluded that if the gravitational pull were different, there would be no galaxies. Well, if there were no galaxies, there would be no orbits. And if there were no orbits, where would we be? There wouldn't be an Earth. There would be no life. And there are six of these numbers that measure infinitesimal little measurements and conclude that if they're any different at all, life as we know it wouldn't exist. Now I read this and I think, how can you possibly know that? I will tell you, it is compatible with Romans 1. God has revealed himself through nature, such that man is without excuse. I believe it could be possible, I just don't know. I don't know their methods, and I don't even understand their process. And I frankly don't even understand their conclusions, and it doesn't matter. They do. If you want to be a scientist, if you want to be an astrophysicist, you buy into Martin Rees's theories. If you want to uh, have a major uh, or teach physics in a major university, you buy into Martin Rees's theories. They believe it. And Martin Rees is an atheist. That fact boggles my mind. Now, as I was studying this, I was reminded of a passage in Revelation I have on the slide here. It talks about the great seals and vials in Revelation where hell is being poured out on the earth by and judgment by God. And what is the people's response to these great outpouring of seals and vials pouring down upon them? They, re, they fall to their knees in repentance and humility, acknowledging the creator is God, right? Not so much. The rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils, the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither did they repent. Revelation 9, 20 and 21. There's another one in 16. The men were scorched with a great... These are the vials, the judgment of the vials. And the men were scorched with a great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which have power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. And another one, same chapter. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plagues of the hail. And I look at that and I think, how stupid do you have to be to deny the existence of God in the presence of his judgment? And how stupid do you have to be to deny the existence of God and still believe in these extraordinary, infinitesimal fractions of fractions of fractions and the difference that they would have, as you believe, as you teach, on the existence of our very creation? It staggers the mind. You talked about probabilities. We talked about preponderance of evidence. How much evidence does it take to convince people, intellectual, sharp people, bright, you can't be stupid and get a PhD. How much evidence does it take administered at the end of a fire hose to alter your belief and your skepticism about the existence of God? It's amazing to me. All right, I've got to get myself organized here. Uh, let's do the next slide. 
So, is the universe designed for life? Well, if, you're, if you believe in science, if you believe in reason, you have to. Now, they may not conclude that God created it, but it's clearly abundantly evident from science that the universe is created for life. Well, let's go to atheism. Does absolute truth exist? Well, atheism, now there's different stripes, there's different brands of atheism, and so we have to be fair that maybe they don't all necessarily believe the same thing, but there's one commonality between all atheists, and that is they believe in evolution because it explains away God, or so they say. So borrowing Guillen's question, does absolute truth exist? Well, no, not if... if um, Everything can be explained by accidents, by cosmic explosion. There is no such. And they borrow from, from uh, the theory of relativity. And we'll, again, we'll talk about it next week. But for example, if I'm um, what, uh, what was taught in the theory of relativity is that energy and mass are relative. As an example of that, if I'm standing here and a car drives by me at 60 miles an hour, it will appear to drive by, if I were to take instruments and measure it and measure the light and the mass that was produced by that speeding car, it will appear to drive by me, it will appear to drive by me at a rate of 60.000 something something. There's just a small deviation when I measure light from um, passing from a stationary object as compared to being in the car itself. That's what relativity is. It's this notion that energy and mass can, are relative because they can appear to be different depending on your perspective. We'll talk more about that next week. But atheism doesn't buy that. They say truth is relative because Einstein said that mass and energy are relative. We can also apply that same uh, notion to truth, which Einstein never intended. Are there truths that cannot be proven? We've already talked about that with um, the inventor of the light bulb. That if you can't prove God in a box, if you can't put God, if you can't prove him on a, empirically, then don't waste my time with it. There are no, any truth that we know to be true is something that can be proven is a position of atheists. Is the universe designed for life? Well, they don't believe that there is a God, so of course not. There would be no reason for the universe to be designed for life. Next one, Christianity. Jesus is up in the upper room with his disciples. He gives them a sermon. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And he concludes in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So the answer for the Christian is truth is definitely absolute and it's revealed in Jesus Christ. Are there truths that cannot be proven? Again, an example taken from the Gospels. Uh, next slide. Jesus, again, is in, in the upper room after the resurrection. And Thomas, doubting Thomas, has said, unless I see the wounds in his side and in his hand, I will not believe. And Jesus responds after him showing him his side and his hand. He said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those 
that have not seen and yet have believed. That's you and I. We believe in something that we have not seen. So the answer to the question, next slide, truths that cannot be proven as Christianity would support that. Finally, as universe designed for life, and um, we go to Genesis 1.1, and the whole story of creation, God created the heavens and the earth, was created for mankind to, so it definitely was created for life. When you look at that conclusion there, at that chart, let's look at, go one more time, see where science and atheism diverge as compared to Christianity. Which is the most compatible? Well, Christianity is more compatible with science. And atheism is not. I want to conclude. I'm out of time. Next slide. Three conclusions. One is taking away from here, borrowing from Dr. Burns' um, three-point question. What do you know? What does it reveal about God? And how is your life going to be different? Well, from this discussion this morning, we know that our worldview matters. It matters to our, to our youth. It matters to us. It matters to the church. Number two, enlightened faith is based upon the preponderance of evidence. And the preponderance of evidence is largely in faith, in, in the favor of the Christian worldview when it comes to things like creation and mental health and other aspects of living. Number three, all truth is God's truth. Christians had nothing to fear from science. We're grateful, Lord, for the privilege that we have to be here this morning. We thank you for your scripture. We thank you for Dr. Guillen and for taking the time as well as having the courage to write this book. I'm sure he's taken a lot of criticism for it. We thank you for the faith-building testimony that he provides in this discussion. And I just pray that you would continue to bless him and bless us as we continue in your service. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.